Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The Federal Reserve as well, looking ahead to a year where we might not get a single rate move whatsoever, according to some people out there at least. Joining us now to weigh in on that, I'm pleased to say, is Randall Crowson, a former Fed governor and University of Chicago Booth School of Business professor. Good morning to you, Professor. Your thoughts on that? A year of the Fed doing nothing? Uh, well, we could hope that that would be the case, because if they do nothing, that will suggest that inflation will be staying around their goal of 2%. And the economy will be continuing to uh, move along at about uh, 2%. Everything seems to be a 2 for uh, 2020. So, Randy, one thing that I'm struggling with is how much the Federal Reserve is actually supporting risk assets right now. And there was a story on the Bloomberg yesterday talking about how uh, the Fed is going to be purchasing, a, I think, about 40% of net issuance of U.S. Treasuries next year. And this is because they're allowing the MBS, the mortgage bonds, uh, to roll off and they're reinvesting the proceeds mm-hmm. in Treasuries. How much is that going to support risk assets in 2020? Well, I think um, it's it's more that um, uh, rather than the specifics of buying the, uh, the treasuries, just that what they're doing with their portfolio, uh, that they are moving out of the mortgage-backed securities, trying to get to a more traditional portfolio of, uh, of all treasury securities, because that's the way that the Fed had worked for 90 years before the financial crisis. And um, uh, also uh, an important piece of this is that they are going to be gradually increasing the balance sheet to provide liquidity into the system. And I think that helps to provide uh, some confidence and support that uh, the liquidity will be there. So, Professor, one of the areas that the Fed is certainly focused on, aside from the uh, benchmark rate, is kind of the short-term end of the curve, the repo market. We had that hiccup back in September. Where is yes. the Fed right now? What do you think they are in terms of coming up with a more permanent solution? Well, I think they've done a good job with the temporary solutions because they just had another uh, auction of some of the uh, liquidity that they were providing and uh, there wasn't a complete take-up of it. So there have been concerns about disruption over the end of the year, and I think um, this suggests that uh, they've now provided enough. We don't have to worry about that. But going forward, I think there should be a, a, a solution that is closer to what most central banks around the world have. It's, sort of, it's sometimes called a tap facility, that whenever more liquidity is needed, um, anyone can just tap that facility and be able to get um, a provision of funds, and that can effectively put uh, a ceiling on uh, on the short-term interest rate, rather than it spiking up to over 10%, uh, which we saw during one of those uh, periods of tumult. If you can just turn to the Fed and know that at any time you can just turn on the tap uh, and just tap it, and uh, it will uh, provide liquidity you need, that uh, that can then provide a, a ceiling and confidence that. Uh, uh, interest rates will spike in the short run. Professor, it is late December, which means that it's time to start worrying about what we should be worrying about in 2020. Uh, and, and one thing that you noted uh, that we're worrying about heading into the new year is bond vigilantes making a comeback. Basically, people saying, if you're going to deepen your deficit, we're going to demand higher interest rates uh, to be compensated to lend to you. Do you really think this is a risk? It hasn't been for years. Uh, that is right, and, and it may not happen this year. At some point, it will happen. Um, but I think as Japan has shown, um, where they have moved from a debt-to-GDP ratio that's sort of close to where we are in the U.S. now, about 80 uh, percent, to now being uh, about 375 percent, the bond vigilantes have not uh, not risen up against uh, against them. 
but it could be in some of the other markets where there are more questions. Um, uh, for example, Italy, uh, which has just issued a lot more debt. There's a populist government there. Uh, there are questions about how strong the European economy is, and there's a lot of Italian debt outstanding. So I think it's a risk. Do I think it's um, something that's likely to, to happen? No. But, um, you know, you want to look at, uh, you, know, you want to do your stress test and scenario analyses looking at those kinds of things. Looking forward to 2020 at the Federal Reserve. A special thanks to Randall Krosner there, former Fed governor and University of Chicago Booth School of Business professor. Looking ahead at the epicentre of political debates worldwide at the moment, a debate about the future of capitalism and what a timely edition of Foreign Affairs magazine, The Future of Capitalism, the January-February edition. And I'm pleased to say that the editor, Gideon Rose, joins us on this programme. Good morning to you, Gideon. Good to be here. So let's talk about that, the range of arguments within this piece. Just lay them out for us. So basically, the, the way I would th- frame this is in... For the last couple of centuries, in the 19th and 20th centuries, capitalism has competed against other kinds of systems of political economy. And it basically won because it was better on balance than those. Now that it's won, now that it dominates the world, that the entire economic system of the vast major players in the world economy is driven by private markets, private sectors in a capitalist kind of way, it now is facing a reckoning because it does have downsides. It provides net benefits rather than absolute benefits. And everybody is now trying to figure out how do we get the benefits of capitalism, markets, dynamism, growth, productivity, all the wonderful positive goods and freedoms that capitalism generates, but protect societies from the downsides that come along with that. Turbulence, the loss of community, the loss of tradition, anomie, a sort of commodification of everything, and increasingly lots of inequality. And so right now you have essentially lots of people who are fighting about how to balance out the controlling capitalism's downsides while harnessing its upsides. This is not a new debate, and this is a reason why no capitalist society has ever been purely capitalist, right? I mean, it's sort of a spectrum with certain level of sort of built-in social systems uh, to sort of catch people at the bottom levels. How much are people addressing where the pendulum should swing in terms of incorporating uh, more or less of the capitalistic principles? Well, that's a great question, because essentially what has happened is over the last couple of Uh, generations over the last 40 years or so, uh, a system that had seemed to be somewhat stable in a mixed economy way generated a whole lot of returns, but that went to the very top of the pyramid in disproportionately. And so there is now a sense that in the last couple of generations, in the heart uh, beating, living the central places of capitalism in the West, the system is working not to rise Uh, good prospects for everybody, but to benefit a few small people at the top who are basically disproportionately reaping the rewards. As now we have American oligarchs uh, as well as Russian oligarchs, and the world seems to be, we were just talking in an earlier segment on TV about private space programs, that Jeff Bezos has one and uh, Elon Musk has one, and we're literally in a situation in which the the future of the economy and the political system is being determined by which oligarch uh, is on your side. And that's not a long-term success for a stable, healthy democracy with true mass democratic legitimacy. But the question is, how do you get from where we are to something better? And a lot of the remedies are often crazy ones or ones that are 
obviously impractical, like the wealth taxes and things like that. So what does capitalism have in its arsenal to deal with income inequality? Well, it could and should have a set of rules by which the game isn't distorted and there aren't fingers on the scales that push things in certain ways. So if you had a tax system that was freer of loopholes, if you had uh, public policies that weren't disproportionately skewed uh, to special interests uh, via various kinds of either campaign systems or lobbying or whatever, then you might get a system that was designed to set rules for everybody that basically worked for the system as a whole rather than increasingly one in which there's carve outs for that. But the most interesting and dangerous question is, is the nature of the global economy that we're moving into, is the digital economy, is an increasingly globalized one, one in which there are winner take all advantages or returns that accrue to the top so that no matter what you do, it would actually just keep redounding to the top. And if that's the real situation, then you get to a situation in which people are wondering, in, is, the, is a remedy like a wealth tax or confiscatory taxation necessary to redistribute the massive stuff going to the top? Um, that's a big question for the 21st century, but we'll just have to see. What's the strongest defense of capitalism within this piece, within the strongest, this edition? Well, there's a, a wonderful piece by Jerry Mueller, um, uh, who basically takes on the uh, the neo-socialist movement, the craze for sort of uh, uh, new kinds of uh, <clears throat> measures that are radically redistributionist, wealth tax included, and things like that. And he basically argues that you need what has critics of capitalism have often been correct about the downsides, but they have been their wisest selves, like social democrats, when they have used the resources that capitalism provides to address the problems it generates. Social democracy and related kinds of progressive reform movements try to harness markets and their benefits, like a farm of chickens which laid golden eggs, which you then distributed the gold to lots of different people. The neo-socialists yeah. don't seem to be interested in chicken, in animal husbandry. They don't care about the chickens. Their economists assume that golden eggs come out of nowhere and there's a steady stream. And so if you focus just on cutting, you know, reaping the eggs, then you don't basically have any chickens. And so the danger here is that that's what's going to happen. Gideon, going to kill the beast. A really smart piece and very timely too. Gideon Rose there, Foreign Affairs Magazine editor. A timely piece ahead of an important 2020 election with this debate very much at the epicenter of it. The future of capitalism with foreign affairs. There are things going on. I'm pleased to say that joining us, Kevin Cerilli is on the phone. He joins us from Los Angeles, Bloomberg News Chief Washington Correspondent, after a set of debates in L.A. for the Democrats. Kevin, talk to me about the response. Who came out on top? Good morning, Jonathan. Look, I, I think that when you look at who came out on top, I'm not sure really anybody won. But I, I do think it was a, a, a night where South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg took it from all sides. I mean, you had Senator Elizabeth Warren going after him on the issue of transparency, Senator Amy Klobuchar going after him on the issue of experience. And so from here, uh, really, you, you had a, a night where Warren and Klobuchar's campaigns made the calculation that they felt that by going after Buttigieg, it could help ascend them to the top tier. What's interesting is, in some ways, this ascends Pete Buttigieg very much to the top tier, no? 
Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And and, and in terms of the dynamics of the race, it, you look at Iowa polls, and he, it's really his to lose. I think actually, uh, to some extent, he's been doing so well in Iowa that should he not perform strongly there, it could end up hurting his campaign. Uh, and, and the expectations now are so high for him to perform well in Iowa. Kevin Wine Caves. <laughs> what what oh what gosh. is that about? Who would have thought that would be the headline that came out of this? Something about like wine caves. Ca- I felt like I was back in Catholic prep school where we're learning <laughs> about, about all of the different, uh, you know, teachings of, of the past. You know, I, I, I thought it was a really telling moment. I also thought it was it, because it, it showcased how Elizabeth Warren is going to navigate the next couple of months. And she's going to be taking it head on to draw that contrast and how to, to, to personalize in political attacks her populist, progressive message. I do want to mention Senator Bernie Sanders because there was that NBC News Wall Street Journal poll that came out 21%. He's the only other candidate besides Biden, of course, is polling among likely Democratic voters um, uh, higher than 20, 20%. That is no small feat. And Andrew Yang also uh, performing strongly. He and Tom Steyer, but for, for Yang's perspective, had to had to prove that he is a contender for, the, for a mainstream uh, uh, candidate. Either way, even if he doesn't end up getting the nomination, uh, and Washington doesn't think he will, but it, it, his his supporters are so incredibly loyal, similarly to how Bernie Sanders' supporters are so incredibly loyal. And that's why you're hearing chatter of a potential brokered convention. So, Kevin, uh, Bloomberg News was reporting that uh, Joe Biden had strongest debate yet. What did he get right last night? Well, he was measured. You know, I, I, I was talking to his, to Simone Sanders, to Kate Bedingfield, as well to some of his campaign advisors in the spin room last night. And, you know, they, they spoke after the debate about how this was the first time that Americans would be hearing largely from Joe Biden and the other candidates following the impeachment and that it was such a serious week in American politics that they wanted to make sure that the former vice president struck that tone. Beyond that, he had a strong first hour performance, but then largely disappeared. I mean, you talk to strategists, you talk to, they, they would argue, you really only need to perform well when there's so many debates in that first hour. Kevin, looking ahead to next year, I've been asking market participants, when do you start to care about 2020? And a lot of the responses I get are basically, well, I'll care when I know what the nominee is, who the nominee is, and then I'll start to look <laughs> at their policies. Kevin, brokered convention, I think that's something a lot of people understand here in the United States, but outside of America, it's just a phrase that they're not familiar with. What is a brokered convention, and when would that happen? Well, I will keep it very simple. It would it would happen during the Democratic convention when the when the party formally nominates a a nominee to take on the the incumbent in this case, President Trump. And what it specifically means is we're heading into a phase where there's Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, the Super Tuesday primary states, but there people go to the polls. They're actually voting to win delegates. And the delegates and the portions of delegates, it's proportionality uh, 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 proportionality divided. So if you get a certain percentage, you get a certain amount of delegates. The campaigns at the debate, let's say one candidate has a certain percentage of delegates, then gets to decide where those delegates would go. And that's where behind the scenes... Wine caves and cigar bars. That's where it gets interesting. <laughs> Kevin, really appreciate your time. I know you've been Thank up all night and getting up early for us this morning too. Yeah. Kevin's already there, Bloomberg News Chief Washington Correspondent.
Bloomberg News out with a really cool story today. It's actually a scoop, as they say in the trade, that Apple is exploring satellites to beam direct to devices. To get the latest, we welcome our good friend, uh, John Butler. John Butler covers Apple and all things telecom for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone. John, thanks so much for joining us. So interesting story out of Bloomberg News, talking about Apple getting in maybe into the satellite deployment business. What do you think their strategy is here? Yeah, I, I have to admit, I didn't see this one coming, Paul. This really uh, surprised me, but it, it does make sense. So if you look at where Apple is really investing right now, it's all about content in many ways. And so if you look at satellite, it's a great point to multi-point technology. It's a great pro broadcast uh, platform. Uh, and so my first thought was they're looking at it for content. Distribution, how, to be clear, content how, distribution. How feasible is it that they're going to become a real player in this? I mean, is this basically just to support their own network, or is it to also potentially compete with the likes of Verizon and AT&T? So I, great question. I think the wireless operators are, are safe for now. Um, I think satellite, again, is really good at point-to-multipoint broadcasting information, uh, it's very good at tracking, but when it comes to that round trip, you can't get around the physics of a long delay. And so satellite phone has never really taken off. And I don't look at this and think, wow, Apple is thinking about using this to set up its own wireless network. So, John, we've talked about this in the past, um, you know, $200 billion of cash on the balance sheet, $60 billion a year of free cash flow coming out of Apple. Should we just think of, of this as just one of the many potential moonshots that they're dabbling in, and maybe it's not that much more than that? I think so, Paul. You know, if you look at, uh, if you read the article carefully, it said it's five years out, or at least that's the estimated timeline for this. Um, and so I think like Google and some of the other big tech companies, they always have a lot of things cooking and not all of them make it to the finish line. Um, again, I think satellite's interesting for Apple. They have a large and growing device base out there. There are definitely applications and potential services that could use accurate device tracking, particularly uh, Apple Maps. And again, I go back to the content play here. It's early days for Apple, but I think three to five years out, they're going to be a real player in content, and having a satellite network can be a real asset uh, in that scenario. John, there's sort of an interesting question embedded in this move by Apple. Is this a signal uh, that Apple is trying to diversify from essentially being an iPhone maker and, and, and seller uh, to a content provider, as you suggest, uh, and that the satellite push is just merely to support that? Or are they looking uh, to plow into other areas of the infrastructure? And I'm wondering if that's the case, will we start talking about the potential for them to acquire uh, one of these uh, these telecom companies? So I've had the thought, right, as the device base grows, the you look at it in the middleman as the wireless player, but really in the broader, I think the broader play for Apple is that move in general into services. Uh, not just content, but, you know, Apple Music is an example, iCloud, Apple Pay. And so 
you know, having the ability to broadcast information to your device base or uh, track devices not only gives you the ability to enhance existing services, but also potentially develop new ones. So I looked at this news in that context as opposed to, boy, it, it it's maybe the first baby steps towards Apple sidestepping the, the wireless carriers. I'm not seeing that yet. So, John, I'm, I'm looking at the Apple stock this year up 77.5%. It's just extraordinary. Um, is that kind of a vindication or is that the market saying we buy off on your pivot to services? I think it's uh, it's hard to say what the move is all about, Paul, but I, I do in talking to clients, you can hear a lot of excitement uh, building around the 5G iPhone coming next year. And I I think there's a lot of merit to that. I think there's a lot of potential for Apple to really upgrade its base to 5G. So I can't really comment on stock price moves per se, but if I had to guess, that would be one factor, one area of great optimism for Apple. They also, like a lot of big stocks, started the year at, at a 52-week low or near a 52-week low, which didn't hurt. So, Yeah. John Butler, thank you so much for being with us uh, today, as always. And as we head toward the new year, thank you so much for all your contributions uh, to Bloomberg Radio. We love having you on. John Butler of Bloomberg Intelligence uh, joining us on the Apple Satellite Story. Certainly at time to look back on what a year it's been. Equity markets up 27, 28% on the S&P. We've got investment grade bonds up uh, close to 15%. The question now is, as we look towards 2020, what kind of encore can the markets give us? Our good friend Margie Patel joins us. She's Wells Fargo uh, Senior Portfolio Manager. She joins us on the phone. Margie, thanks so much for joining us. Again, you know, a great, great year for a lot of the financial markets out there. How are you framing 2020 as you look ahead? I think 2020 is going to be a continuation of the great trends we saw this year. And in fact, I think there's a chance we may see the economy, we saw GDP this morning, 2.1, actually uh, begin to accelerate. So we could actually see the equity market do even better than, say, mid-high single digits, which I'm expecting in 2020. Margie, how concerned are you that that is the solid consensus, that people expect uh, the economy to keep improving, not go too crazy to the point of igniting inflation and having a bond sell-off, but everything will just continue to do well, albeit perhaps not as, not as well as this year? Well, I think a lot of people are nervous because after you've had basically a decade of the market advancing, people are naturally nervous. But to me, the big change is the Fed has fundamentally changed how they operate. We can count on them not slamming on the brakes the way they have previously. And as long as the fundamentals are uh, solid, which they are, I think the market should expand. The only knock on next year is I do think that the absolute returns will be more modest than this year. In other words, low single-digit for equities, mid-single-digit for fixed income, only earning coupon and fixed income rather than what turned out to be a <clears throat> truly spectacular year for the bond market. We're speaking with Margie Patel, Wells Fargo Senior Portfolio Manager. Uh, but Margie, let's think about 2020. You know, as I look back to 2019, it seems like we had a couple of periods where people were rotating in from the growth to more maybe conservative, defensive sectors, and then cycling back into growth. 
As we think about 2020, how out there on the risk spectrum do you think we should be in terms of, you know, growth versus maybe more value? I think we still have to stick with growth because growth uh, will be slowing down. And so those companies that can produce some kind of uh, say double-digit earnings growth will be more and more valuable. So uh, I'm not looking to find the undervalued areas. Certainly it's frustrating when every good company you look at that you don't own is probably up 40% year-to-date. So naturally people want to look more to the bottom of the barrel, but I think it's better to stick with uh, growth at this point. Margie, what will be the worst performing asset class in 2020? Uh, I think commodities are going to... uh, continue to be disappointing on balance because where you don't have inflation, where you don't have explosive growth from China, that period's done. I think commodities will be rather disappointing. How about emerging markets? I think, you know, one area that people are suggesting is emerging markets has been a chronic underperformer. And maybe if we get some type of trade deal, even if it's a phase one deal, that might be the catalyst for emerging markets broadly defined. What do you think? Well, virtually all emerging markets are commodity-based, so I don't see that there's really any driver there to accelerate that. And in particular, because they're commodity-based, they've been very dependent on China. China's growth is clearly slowing down, so I'm uh, uh, even less than lukewarm on emerging markets. They spent the last 10 years... uh, doubling, tripling their debt internally. They haven't made fundamental changes in their economy. Now you have commodity price and demand uh, flat or going down. So that's not an attractive picture for me. Margie, this year, the 60-40 portfolio was amazing. It crushed it on every level. There was a bond rally. There was a stock rally. 60-40 would absolutely uh, have been the right way to go. Why would that not be the case next year? I mean, it sounds like we're setting up for more of the same, albeit less high. Well, I would say when you just look at the bond math is how much price appreciation can you have when a lot of bonds are running into their call price. That's especially a problem in high yield. The absolute coupons are very low, 2 3 4%. Uh, in other words, right on top of equity dividends. And uh, and I think that uh, even if the stocks are only up, you know, say 8 10 12%, that will still be better than any part of the bond market can produce just because of the low coupon and the lack of price appreciation. And when you talk about uh, high yield debt, I know you've been cautious uh, in the past about it. I- I'm wondering, you think that uh, given the call price and where we are, does this seem like an area that's ripe for, for a correction or do you think that it'll just cap, cap potential upside? I think the big criticism of high yield, two things actually. One is you just aren't going to be able to make double-digit returns next year just because of the low coupon and so many bonds are already trading at their call price. So total returns, 3 4 5 6% are the maximum that you can make there. Uh, secondly, there's actually rather a scarcity of good quality high yield bonds, and I'd say that's going to be the big challenge next year is what do you buy that's acceptable quality. Uh, a lot of the lower tier and even some of the good names have been sucked off into the loan market. They've financed in private equity. And so the the demand is very, very high. And I think next year, the supply of decent names will be very limited. So that'll be the challenge for investors. Margie Patel, how about leverage loan market? Is that too much risk here? The risk reward is not there. How do you think about that market? 
again, levered loans have pulled off a lot of the bottom-tier supply that would have come to the high-yield market. They've gone to levered loan market because they got much better terms, even lower coupon rates. And so if there's risk in the fixed-income market, and I think that's very, very modest. I'm looking, not looking for any big explosion. I think the levered loan market might be disappointing because of some of those lower-tier names that uh, turn out have too much leverage, don't have a great business model. Margie Patel, thank you so much for being with us and happy holidays to you. Uh, Margie Patel is Wells Fargo Asset Management Senior Portfolio Manager uh, joining us by phone. Interesting to see how the consensus really is solidifying heading into 2020. Uh, The the, the risk assets are going to do pretty well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.